Well, back in April of 2014, the world was shocked to hear the news that 276 Nigerian schoolgirls were kidnapped by Boko Haram, a violent group of Islamic terrorists. The girls who were between the ages of 16 and 18 years old at the time were put onto trucks and taken deep into the forest. All of the non-Muslims in the group were coerced to convert to Islam and were then forced into marriages with members of the terrorist group. Those who refused to accept Islam as their new religion were reportedly gathered into groups and treated the same way that Muhammad treated the so-called infidels that he seized in his own violent campaigns. As you can imagine, these young women have endured incredible trauma throughout their violent ordeal, and although a number of them have been released and reunited with their families, it's estimated that 13 have died, that many have been infected with HIV, and that 112 are still missing and unaccounted for. We're deeply moved and disturbed by stories of kidnapping in our own time, and over the next few months, we're going to be looking at a biblical account of kidnapping, coercion, and indoctrination, the inspired account of Daniel and his three friends, young men who are taken by force into a foreign land in order to serve the purposes of a tyrannical king. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I'd invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're going to be reading the entire first chapter this morning. Daniel chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Uh, Mishael and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. 
As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Not too sure about you, but I have always loved the Old Testament book of Daniel, an inspiring book of courage and godly resolve in the face of almost insurmountable opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Daniel is without a doubt one of my favorite Bible characters, and it is not a coincidence that our oldest son bears the name of this biblical prophet who is chosen by God for a special mission in Babylon. The first half of this book, which is full of exciting stories of tremendous courage, has always inspired my imagination and encouraged me in my walk with the Lord, while the second half of the book has at times perplexed and frustrated me. If I'm honest with you this morning, I've spent considerably more time reading the first half of Daniel than I have the second half, and I wouldn't be surprised whether that was also true of most of you. But as we make our way through these 12 inspired chapters in the coming weeks and months, we're going to examine the prophetic chapters in just as much detail as the narrative chapters. And we're going to discover that these challenging prophecies are in fact crucial to the overarching message of the book, the message that God is sovereign over every kingdom, over every empire, over every authority in this world, and that his kingdom will prevail when all of the other kingdoms of this world have long passed away. I think it's true that most of us are accustomed to studying the book of Daniel with a fixation on Daniel and his friends as the main heroes and protagonists. But as we study these chapters with fresh eyes, we are going to discover that the main hero of this book is not Daniel. Rather, the main hero of this book is Daniel's God. The hero of this book, as in all of the Bible, is the God who is meticulously sovereign over all the happenings in our world. The God who actively superintends the unfolding events of human history. The God who is unceasingly faithful to all those he has brought under his covenant of grace, whether in the Old Testament or in the New. This is not, in the final analysis, a book about moral principles and good Christian living. This is a book about God's lavish grace that has been poured out on us. This book is a foreshadowing of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we dig into the book of Daniel this morning and look specifically at the first chapter, I want to point out a short phrase that is repeated three times by the inspired author. It's the little phrase, God gave, that you can see in verse 2, in verse 9, and in verse 17. We're going to allow that little phrase, God gave, to govern the structure of our messages over the next few weeks as we consider this chapter in three parts, recognizing first of all, that God gave the exile as a punishment for his people. Secondly, that God gave special favor to these four Jewish youths. And thirdly, that God gave great influence to Daniel, an influence that outlasted the very empire that tried to destroy his nation 
and his faith in God. Let's begin then in verses 1-2 to where we find the first mention of that little phrase God gave and where we learn who exactly is responsible for the exile of these young men. Look again at the text with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. To understand the biblical book of Daniel, it is important that we first understand something of the historical backdrop to this book as a whole. Historical details that are given to us right here at the outset of the book. In verses 1-2, to Daniel introduces us to two kings and two kingdoms. One kingdom that is on the way up in terms of worldly influence, and another kingdom that is on the way down. The kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Judah. This is a tale of two kingdoms and a tale of two cities. King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon will become very familiar to us in the coming weeks. And if you know your Bible well, you will certainly be aware that the word Babylon is filled with historical and theological significance beginning all the way back in the book of Genesis and extending all the way forward to the book of Revelation. In the Bible, the city of Babylon is virtually synonymous with all that is evil and worldly and contrary to the kingdom of God. It represents the corrupted world system that lies under the authority of Satan and his minions. This negative association between, with Babylon is introduced back in Genesis chapter 11, where we find evidence of the wicked rebellion and depravity of mankind in the years following the great flood of Noah. A world where once again, the Lord God could look down on humanity and see that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Although God had severely judged the wickedness of mankind through the flood and had given the human race a new beginning through the descendants of Noah and his sons, it didn't take long for rebellion to break out again. And so we're told in Genesis 11 that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. In the years following the flood of Noah, the sinful pride of mankind was displayed in this humanistic building project known as the Tower of Babel, a tower that was intended to reach up to the heaven, a humanistic monument that was intended to show God that He was no longer needed, that He was no longer great and greatly to be praised. But God, as we read in Genesis 11, brought these foolish plans to nothing and He scattered the rebels across the face of the earth. And by the way, those rebels went on to become our ancestors. 
It was in the context of that ancient tower that Babylon rose to become the first superpower in human history, a symbol of pride and wickedness and rebellion that was centered in Mesopotamia, the region of the world that we we know today as Iraq. Babylon had its heyday in the second millennium BC, but as the centuries wore on, her military might began to wane, and the power vacuum was filled by Egypt and the pharaohs, and then later on by Assyria, powerful and wicked nations that would pick up Babylon's mantle in opposing God and oppressing his covenant people. In the year 722 BC, God used the Assyrian Empire to judge the disobedience of Samaria and the northern tribes of Israel. It was a devastating and brutal invasion that practically decimated 10 of the 12 northern tribes. In the southern kingdom of Judah, which was centered in Jerusalem, uh, they largely avoided the Assyrian destruction. But in the 7th century BC, something unimaginable happened as the Babylonian Empire was suddenly revived to the point where Assyria itself started to tremble. In the year 612 BC, the Babylonians marched into Nineveh, the capital city of, of the Assyrians, and burned it to the ground just as the prophet Nahum had predicted. A few years after that, in 605 BC, a Babylonian general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar II marched into Egypt and won a decisive bet battle at Carchemish, essentially destroying the remnants of Assyrian and Egyptian power and solidifying his place on the stage of world history. With this tremendous military victory at Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar had firmly reestablished Babylonian supremacy. And it was at this time that he turned his gaze towards Judah and Jerusalem, which had somehow survived the wrath of Assyria. During the 7th century BC, Babylon was on the rise as the greatest empire in the world. But we discover in the biblical text that over the course of this same period of time, the kingdom of Judah was on its way down. Although God had graciously protected Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah, we read in the book of Kings how Hezekiah made overtures to the Babylonians, foolishly showing them his treasure house, in effect asking them to be his ally against the mighty Assyrians. Now, from a worldly perspective, this probably seemed like a shrewd political move, but the prophet Isaiah was not at all impressed with Hezekiah's lack of faith, and he delivered the following message of judgment to the king. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And now listen to this part. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I wonder who's that that's talking about. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word that of of the Lord that you've spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. In this very foolish and worldly way of thinking, King Hezekiah had set the kingdom of Judah on a dangerous path, thinking only of himself and his own welfare and not about the future sons and daughters who would reap the bitter fruit of Babylonian exile. Well, next in line for the throne of Judah was another king named Manasseh, by far the most wicked man who ever sat on David's throne. 
Manasseh hated God with a passion. He replaced the true worship of Yahweh with the false worship of the Canaanite idols. He led the nation of Israel into wholesale idolatry to the point where the people of Israel were burning their infant children to a Canaanite demon named Molech. According to Jewish tradition, Manasseh is the man responsible for the murder of the prophet Isaiah. And tradition says that he tied Isaiah to a tree and then sawed him in half. By the end of Manasseh's despotic reign, the worship of Yahweh had almost been extinguished from the land of Judah, and even the law of God had been all but forgotten. But under his son Josiah, the precious law of God was recovered in the temple, and it was reinstituted by priests. As the new king in Israel, Josiah became just as righteous as his father Manasseh was was wicked. And it was during the reign of this righteous king named Josiah that Daniel and his friends were born and raised as the children of Jewish nobility. The prophet Daniel was brought up during this period of spiritual renewal in Israel, and it is very evident from the text that Daniel and his three friends were intimately familiar with the law of God and that they were raised in families that were wholeheartedly devoted to the worship of God. Well, for a while, things were looking up in Judah, but tragically, it was too little too late, for we read in the Word of God that Josiah's spiritual reforms were totally undone by his son Jehoiakim, the king who is mentioned here in verse 1 of our text. Just like his grandfather Manasseh, we know that Jehoiakim was a spiritual tyrant who persecuted the prophet Jeremiah and who looked to Egypt for help instead of looking to God. And under the poor leadership of this king named Jehoiakim, Judah became little more than a vassal state of Egypt. And when Egypt eventually fell to the Babylonians in 605 BC, the kingdom of Judah shared their fate. For on his way home from the battle of Carchemish, King Nebuchadnezzar stopped off at Jerusalem and did exactly what we read in verses 2-4 to of our text, besieging the city, taking some of the vessels and valuables from the temple, and kidnapping selected members of the royal family. Use without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. This is how Daniel and his three friends ended up in the city of Babylon. They were kidnapped by a despotic king used as pawns in this man's plan for world domination. The kidnapping of Daniel and his friends marked the beginning of the end for Judah and Jerusalem. It was the fulfillment of Isaiah's words to King Hezekiah that we have already read, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The year 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar kidnapped the children of nobility. Then several years later, in 597 B.C., he came back to to Judah to assassinate King Jehoiakim and to take his son into captivity. Things were not going very well for the people of God. But the fatal blow came in 586 B.C. when the Babylonian army surrounded Jerusalem raised it to the ground, destroying the walls of the city and destroying the temple that Solomon had built several centuries earlier. It was far and away the greatest devastation that Israel had ever known. It was inconceivable tragedy that resulted in the loss of the promised land, that resulted in the loss of the kingdom of Judah, that resulted in the loss of Solomon's temple. 
This was the beginning of a 70-year Babylonian exile that the prophets had predicted. And it is hard for us to imagine the grief and the pain that must have filled the hearts of the Jewish people during this period of history. Closest that we get in the Word of God is Psalm 137, which says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors required mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You know, in a sense, that mournful question posed by the Jewish exiles in Babylon is the question that the book of of Daniel is seeking to answer. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we live as God's people in a country and culture that is openly hostile to Yahweh and His holy word? How can we live in obedience to Yahweh in a place that has no temple where we can go to worship, no place to offer sacrifices in obedience to the law? This was the soul-crushing challenge that the Jewish exiles faced in Babylon. It was a challenge that Daniel and his friends were confronted with when they were placed under the guardianship of this pagan king. How can we be faithful to God in this foreign and unfamiliar land? You know something, brothers and sisters? It is precisely the same question that you and I are confronted with today as Christian men and women who are citizens of two different cities and kingdoms at one and the same time, the city of this world which is destined to pass away and the city of God which will last forever. Although the book of Daniel was written six centuries before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it contains a message that is absolutely relevant for you and I today as we live out our lives in a strange and foreign land. Daniel and his friends are going to show us what it looks like to live as God's people in a culture that does not know, honor, or obey our God. 50 or 60 years ago, I think most Christians felt quite comfortable and quite at home here in North America. Fifty years ago, this was a culture that was largely influenced by Christian morals and biblical values. For well over a millennium, Western civilization was deeply impacted by the Christian faith. But today in the 21st century, I suspect that most of us don't feel quite as comfortable and at home here in the Western world. Increasingly, it feels as though we are strangers and exiles in a foreign land. Now for many of us, that has been an agonizing shift to experience as we fought and largely lost the culture wars. But perhaps it's not such a bad thing after all. For at the end of the day, it reminds us that this broken, fallen world is not our ultimate home. It reminds us that personal comfort and security in this world is not the reason why God has left us here and given us His Spirit. We Christians are indeed strangers and exiles in this land. We are pilgrims on a journey to a new and a greater city that God is preparing for those who love Him and who embrace His Son by grace alone through faith. And so in Peter's first epistle, the passage that we read earlier in the service, Christians are addressed as elect exiles. 
And the inspired apostle instructs them, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The Jewish exiles during the time of the prophet Daniel needed to learn how to sing God's song in a foreign land. And you and I need to learn that same lesson today. How do we live as Christians for the glory of God? How do we pass our days in exile by the waters of Babylon? The opening verses of Daniel present us with a grim picture of Babylonian supremacy and Jewish suffering. And we're faced in these first two verses with a very difficult but important question. Who in the final analysis is responsible for the exile? And what I find fascinating here in verses 1 and 2 is that we're presented by the inspired author with two different answers to that question that are both equally true and valid. One answer that's given to us from the historical perspective and a second answer that's given from the theological perspective. One answer that comes from below and one answer that comes from above. Now historically, there is no doubt that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were responsible for the Jewish exile. For we're told in verse 1 of our text, it was Nebuchadnezzar who besieged Jerusalem. It was Nebuchadnezzar who pillaged the temple and who kidnapped Daniel and all the sons of nobility. Historically, politically, militarily, Nebuchadnezzar gets all of the credit for the destruction of Jerusalem and for the subsequent exile of the Jewish people, for it was clearly his superior military power that got the job done. And so when we look at the exile from the perspective of verse 1, all of the responsibility for Jewish suffering is placed squarely on the shoulders of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But true and valid as that perspective may be, there is more to the story that stares us in the face when we move from verse 1 into verse 2 and learn about a different power that is constantly at work in the unfolding annals of history. Have a look at verse 2, friends. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. There's that first phrase, and the Lord gave. And so I ask you the question again. Who is responsible for the destruction of Judah and for the exile of Daniel and his friends? According to verse 1, it's King Nebuchadnezzar who's responsible. But according to verse 2, it is none other than God Himself. An undeniable fact indicated by that little phrase, and the Lord gave. This is the sovereign Lord of history who according to Ephesians 1 verse 11 works all things according to the counsel of His will. I'm going to say this at the outset of our study in Daniel and I will likely repeat it many more times throughout the course of this sermon series. The main theme that dominates the book of Daniel is the theme of God's meticulous sovereignty over every event that happens in this world. And when I say meticulous sovereignty, that is exactly what I mean, brothers and sisters. There is not one sparrow that falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. There is not one hair that grows on your head that does not grow by the sovereign decree of God. 
The God who is revealed in Scripture is a God who is utterly and completely sovereign over everything that ever has and ever will occur. And his sovereignty is expressed in such a way that man always remains fully responsible for his sin and in such a way that our holy God always remains totally innocent of any wrongdoing. Daniel emphasizes God's sovereignty right out of the gates here in verse In verse 1, he places the actions of a sinful king right alongside the actions of the holy God. Human responsibility is seen in verse 1. Divine sovereignty is seen in verse 2. Two perspectives on history that are equally true, valid. They are fully compatible with one another just as long as we are willing to embrace a biblical definition of free will that takes into account the devastating effects of original sin. There is an inter, this interplay between human responsibility and divine sovereignty is not an issue that is unique to the book of Daniel. It's a theme that we trace throughout the entire Bible from cover to cover. Take, for example, the story of Joseph. Consider for a moment who was responsible for Joseph's enslavement in the land of Egypt. From one perspective, we could rightly place the responsibility onto his brothers, for it was they who plotted against them. It was they who used their free will to throw him into a pit and to sell him into slavery. From another perspective, the responsibility for Joseph's entire ordeal lies with God himself. For as God will, Joseph will later tell his brothers, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The same principle is shown in the book of Job, a book we studied not all that long ago here at Rosedale. In the opening chapters of Job, we learn from one perspective, it was Satan who afflicted Job with so much suffering. But when we take a second glance at the text, we come to realize that it was actually God who brought Job to Satan's attention in the first place, that it was God who ordained the entire trial for a good and a gracious purpose that even Job didn't understand. You also recall in the book of Job that Satan is never once absolved of his wickedness and that God is never once relieved of his sovereignty. These two biblical truths are placed side by side in the inspired narrative with the expectation that we, the readers, will embrace both of these truths at the same time and that we will never make an effort to rob God of his sovereign prerogative. The interplay between responsibility and sovereignty comes through once again in in Isaiah 10 verse 5 where the wicked empire of Assyria is described by the prophet Isaiah as the rod of God's righteous anger. And if you study that chapter in greater detail, you will see that God in his meticulous sovereignty picks up Assyria as the rod of his discipline and uses that rod to strike the northern tribes on account of their disobedience to the law. And according to Isaiah the prophet, God is perfectly within his rights to use one wicked nation to judge another wicked nation and then to turn around and to judge that nation for its wickedness. In Christian theology, we sometimes refer to this phenomenon as secondary causation. God is never the author of of sin, nor is God ever the primary cause of sinful action in this world. But the biblical record shows us beyond any shadow of doubt that God can and that God does use wicked people and wicked nations and even the devil himself to accomplish his good and gracious plans. That's why the great reformer Martin Luther used to say somewhat tongue-in-cheek that even the devil is God's devil. 
By that, he meant that God can use the devil to accomplish his plans and that in so doing, the devil is never excused from his sin, nor is God ever implicated in in unrighteousness. But perhaps the most magnificent display of divine sovereignty working alongside human responsibility is seen in the event that we commemorated last weekend, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we ask the question, who is responsible for the death of Christ, we are once again confronted with two answers that are equally true and valid. From a historical perspective, the responsibility for crucifixion lies with Caiaphas and the Jews. It lies with Pilate and the Romans. It lies with the centurion who put the Lord on the cross. But when we consider that same question theologically, we discover the responsibility for the crucifixion lies with the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God who made a solemn covenant in eternity past to accomplish the plan of redemption so that Jesus Christ is called in the Scriptures the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Believers in the early church were not ashamed of this doctrine of God's meticulous sovereignty, for we read these stunning words in Acts chapter 4. This is in a prayer meeting, and listen to this. The believers pray and they say, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. I don't know how anyone can skirt around this, friends. According to the clear testimony of God's Word, the crucifixion was planned, predestined, and accomplished by God Himself, but in such a way that Judas, Pilate, and Caiaphas still bear all of the responsibility for their murderous actions. I could give you many more biblical examples of this phenomena, but I think you get the point. And I hope that you can discern this is the point that Daniel is placing before us in the first two verses of this text. Who is ultimately responsible for the exile? Well, Daniel says there are two answers to that question. From a strictly human perspective, it was Nebuchadnezzar. And one day, King Nebuchadnezzar will need to answer to God for the atrocities that he committed against the Jewish people. But from another perspective, from the larger perspective, the responsibility for the exile lies with God Himself. For it was the Lord who decreed the exile as a just punishment for Judah's sin, not neglecting His promises to Israel, but rather fulfilling the promise that He spoke to them in Deuteronomy 28, if you obey the terms of My covenant, you will be blessed. But if you disobey the terms of My covenant, I will curse you and I will take you out of your land. Well, friends, we have only scratched the surface of the book of Daniel this morning. But here in verses 1 and 2, we have already been introduced to the dominant theme of the book as a whole, the sovereignty of God, which is directing the course of history towards its appointed and predestined end. The doctrine of God's meticulous sovereignty, which is taught here in the book of Daniel, is an idea that disturbs and angers many people and many even within the church of Christ. But I want to suggest to you this morning that when divine sovereignty is properly understood, it is the most comforting teaching you can imagine. For it means that there is a good and loving God who is in control of this world even when this world looks like it's totally out of control. If the God of the Bible is not meticulously sovereign, we human beings are in deep, deep trouble. But if God is sovereign, as Daniel believed, 
as I believe, as the Bible teaches, there is nothing at all that we Christians need to fear in this life. For even if it is God's appointed purpose that I will suffer some kind of tragedy or even to die a martyr's death, I can know beyond any shadow of doubt my Father in heaven has not abandoned me. He has some higher purpose in mind for my suffering even if it does not make sense to me in the moment. Furthermore, I can trust that my sovereign God will walk with me through any season of suffering and that my God will give me the resources that I need to endure any trial and to emerge from that trial as the victor. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is only as we embrace a high view of God's sovereignty that we can do what the Apostle James instructs us to do in the New Testament Uh, epistle when he says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing this was the biblical perspective that daniel embraced as an exile in babylon this was the perspective that joseph embraced as a slave in egypt this is the perspective that you and i must embrace in our lives today. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Amen.